This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This is Jenna Liute, host of Eating Matters on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for four years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important conversations from food industry experts about the issues that shape our everyday experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Eating Matters in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm joined on the line by Dr. Marlene Schwartz. Um, Marlene is a director of the Red Center for Food Policy and Obesity and the professor of human development and family sciences at the University of Connecticut. She is also a co-author of the recently released article titled A Primer on U.S. Food and Nutrition Policy and Public Health, published in the American Journal of Public Health. And I'm so pleased it's brought her to the show today. Marlene, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. All right. So before we get into um, the the article that you recently wrote, I want to, can you tell us a little bit about the Red Center and the work that you do there? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, so the mission of the Red Center is to do research to inform policy with the ultimate goal of improving the food environment for children so that it's easier for parents to raise healthy kids. So we do research in a number of areas. One is um, school meals or child care meals. We also look at food marketing directed at children. And then we have an economist who does research looking at pricing, things like um, sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. And then we also have um, a faculty member who studies weight stigma and discrimination. And you have a, have you always, well, you so you have a background in psychology, right? Several, That's right. Several degrees. <laughs> so, yeah, so my background is clinical psychology, and it's interesting, actually, a couple of us, Rebecca Poole and I both are um, trained in clinical psychology, and both of us really felt after doing clinical work that it was very hard to sort of help people navigate this environment. It kind of felt like we would sit in our offices and try to help parents and kids, you know, make healthier choices, you know, try to do things like avoiding TV in the bedroom and things like that. And it just felt like the environment undid everything we were trying to accomplish in treatment. And so we both really felt that a sort of more effective and efficient strategy would be to dedicate ourselves to doing more policy-relevant research. 
And um, the other faculty members, uh, Jennifer Harris is a social psychologist, and Tanya Andreeva is an economist. And so we really have come together to try to make the Rudd Center. Um, so do you think that, so that it seems like that the background in psychology has really impacted and, and affected your work. Is this unique in the field of obesity prevention? I, I tend to think of it more as like a, you know, MPH, you know, master's in public health kind of focused field in terms of people's background or MDs. So do you think you bring a unique perspective given your work as a psychologist? Well, what I think is interesting is if you look at obesity treatment and you sort of go back over the decades, a lot of the early treatment studies were done by psychologists, um, in fact, behavioral psychologists who were really trying to just sort of help people change their behaviors because that was the idea is all you needed to do was sort mm-hmm. of give people tools and they could change their behaviors and lose weight. And I think that as time has gone on and particularly, you know, in the last couple of decades where there's been such a increase in obesity and so much effort to try to turn that around and it's been so difficult that the field has really shifted to more of a public health approach. So I agree, many of my colleagues are in public health or public policy And then, as I mentioned with Tanya, we have economists, we Mm -hmm. have lawyers. I mean, there's hardly a discipline out there that doesn't in some way um, have something to contribute in terms of the effort to improve the food environment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so shifting gears and focusing on this paper, um, can you just give us an overview of who was involved um, in this work and what made you guys, you know, decide to write it now? Sure. So, um, so one person who was involved was Kelly Brownell, who was actually the founder of the Rudd Center when mm-hmm. we were back at Yale in 2005. He's currently at Duke University. Um, and then um, the other person was Lee Miller, um, who is an attorney and is also located in North Carolina. And so we were um, contacted by the editor of the American Journal of Public Health, who had this idea of writing an article, sort of an opinion piece about the farm bill, and we came up with our ideas of what we wanted to cover. And when we shared those, he said, well, that sounds like a lot. Maybe we should divide this into three separate papers. So that's how it happened. Um, and then I was really excited to see that Marion Nessel provided comments and Kevin Kincannon did as well as part of the series. Yeah. Okay. So this, so in this, I just thought that this primer was so amazing because you managed to lay out kind of like the, I mean, the major issues, um, not just, not just about like obesity or, you know, generally it's like public health. It's like all of the food systems issues kind of (laughs) coming together at once and really making the clear connection between the environment and public health and, you know, healthy eating. Um, but that said, so there are basically like three major like pillars that you guys discussed, right? In the, in this paper and, and you took on one of them. Can you, um, just tell us a little bit about just a brief overview about what those three were and how you guys aligned on those three? Sure. So, um, Lee Miller, his expertise is really about the farm bill and agriculture and sustainability. And so he was particularly interested in talking about how the um, sort of dietary impact of decisions made with the Farm Bill need to also um, come together with, you know, effects on the environment. And so one of the things he talked about was actually the dietary guidelines, which when they... um, 
were being discussed last time, they just put together the new committee, but when they were being discussed last time for the 2015 dietary guidelines, the committee really wanted to take on food system sustainability as a factor and think about not just recommendations for what people should eat, but also recommendations about the sort of type of food system we need in order to have a more sustainable system and protect our environment. Mm -hmm. And that was criticized heavily, um, primarily by lobbyists. And the, um, you know, and it really got kind of ugly (laughs) where, um, there was a sort of admonishment of the committee telling them that they were coloring outside the lines and that they needed to sort of stick to dietary advice for individual people. Mm. So he really hopes that we can revisit that and think about recommendations that will serve both, you know, sort of human health and planetary health. Um, Kelly's piece was focused primarily on the food assistance programs, because one of the largest components of the Farm Bill is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And so he talked about the importance of SNAP as well as WIC and just the problem of food insecurity and the terrible consequences of not, um, you know, particularly for children of being food insecure and not, you know, not having access to enough nutritious food. Mm -hmm. And then my section was on um, school meals because that's something that I've studied a lot and follow pretty carefully. And, you know, sort of expressing on the one hand the joy, I think, that everyone in the field felt with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act and the tremendous improvements that we've seen as the regulations came out after that act, improving the strength of sort of school lunch, school breakfast, smart snacks. You know, they even took on food marketing in schools. And then we started to see with this administration some backsliding and sort of pulling back of the regulations. So I really wanted to dig into that and explain why that was such a problem. And it seems to be one of the one of the common threads kind of between all of these different sections of the paper is that in some way, you know, all there's, there are threats um, out there right now with this current administration um, and the real possibility of kind of reversing the course in progress. Um, do you think that's accurate? I mean, I think there are threats because I think that it actually took a huge amount of political will to make the progress that we made in the last administration. And I personally give Michelle Obama a tremendous amount of credit. I feel like she took on the issue of childhood obesity and really made the case that this was something that, you know, the policies in our country needed to support parents. And I think that, you know, we just don't have a champion like that in the White House right now. No, she's focused to say on. The least. Yeah, <laughs> I would say I would say the first lady's focused on um, what was it? Uh, anti-bullying, which I find which is fine. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's also super ironic. But um, anyway, I digress. So okay, so there. So yeah, it seems yeah, it seems to me like whether it is in terms of like the sustainability of our food system, you see a lot of deregulation, rolling back of um, you know important kind of gains that happened under the Obama administration, like at the EPA. Um, and then a fight over SNAP funding and certainly the school nutrition um, program, which we're definitely going to talk a lot about, given that was your, you, know, you were the lead author in that section. Um, but one of the things that Lee talks about in his section of the paper is that there's been like such a traditional divide. Um, and certainly you can say like a lack of collaboration between the public health sector and 
and I think also the food insecurity, um, like advocacy community, and then sustainable agriculture. What are some steps like, you know, he talks about the need to bridge this divide and work together and collaborate, but like, what are some of the exact, as you have an example of what this could look like, you know, how we can come together and work together? Is it on a policy? Um, Like, what what are concrete steps that we can take right now? Well, I think that, you know, it's, I, I think it's absolutely true. I think that, you know, you have different groups that have their focus, their mission, the, you know, the kind of the folks that they're most interested in protecting. And, you know, people tend to have sort of tunnel vision and just focus on that. Um, I mean, I think the first step is really articles like this. And also um, there was a series in The Lancet recently that additionally talked about sort of the importance of pulling all of the groups together to come up with solutions that would take care of both people and the planet. Um, so I think the first step is, is getting people in the same room. I think it would make sense to, um, you know, sort of have some agreements not to undermine each other, because I think that sometimes that can happen where one group is so focused on, you know, just protecting um, you know, their constituency that they are sort of willing to not mm-hmm. worry about other constituencies. So I think, you know, it's really about communication. And, and I think the more that we just make the case to the public that these things are related, that I think that, you know, societal views will shift and people will come to believe that you really can't just solve one part of the puzzle and completely ignore the rest because eventually there will be consequences that hurt everybody. Is that kind of what happened with the dietary, the latest round of the dietary guidelines where, as you mentioned at the top, sustainability um, was completely removed from the equation? I personally, yes, I think that's what happened. I mean, I think that the, the folks that stood to lose if the dietary guidelines came out and said something about for example, plant-based diets, <laughs> mm-hmm. not creating greenhouse gases to the same extent as, you know, sort of beef production, for example. Um, I think that those groups were very worried about that and really wanted to make sure that the scientists on the Dietary Guidelines Committee didn't start talking about those issues and just focused exclusively on sort of what happens once the food goes into the human body as opposed to what how the food got created in the first place. Right. Okay, so what are some of those links? So if you were to think about, if you were to kind of help draw the, you know, connect the dots for listeners, how can the food that we grow, you know, how does that immediately impact public health? And then what are some of the steps that we can take to move the needle uh, in a direction where these two sectors are collaborating towards a healthier food system? Well, I think that there are some trends um, that are happening kind of in our society overall that are encouraging. I mean, I think, you know, it sounds... I don't know, it it might sound like idealistic, but this idea of farmer's markets are sort of held out as a great example of something that helps everybody. So it helps the farmers, it makes people more connected to where their food is grown, who is growing their food. Um, People can now use SNAP at farmer's markets, and then that food, of course, hasn't traveled very far, and it is mostly plants, and so that can be healthy for the individual, you know, consuming the food. So that's kind of one scenario that is kind of this win-win situation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, 
you know, moving away from highly processed foods um, is another example of where that's going to help in terms of your health because chances are if you're decreasing your processed food consumption, you're going to be decreasing sodium and added sugars. And then if, you know, and that those also are the foods that tend to use a lot of resources in order, um, you know, to be created. Right. And and then I think the other example that comes out a lot is is red meat, that this is something that isn't as healthy for people to eat large amounts of because of the saturated fat, and it isn't something that is sort of good for the planet in terms of the amount of resources that go into creating a pound of beef and, you know, how hard that is on the planet. Yeah, that it always comes back to reduce your red meat consumption. Always, 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 inevitably. Yeah. And then, didn't you guys just release a paper about the the um, the Red Center about the possible the, the fact that like white meat might not be as as good for us in terms of like a cholesterol perspective from a cholesterol perspective? That, yeah, that I think we commented on that paper. That wasn't our paper. Oh, that wasn't your paper. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I was like, oof, can't deal with this now. <laughs> 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 this is uh, down the road. So, I, yeah, and also, I mean, you write about the, like, the nutritional, the lack of the nutritional value in, like, the foods that are commonly grown in this country, which I think a lot of people don't realize when they, when they think about the food system, that there is, you know, that all foods are not created equal, even, even like, from a vegetable perspective, yeah, and that, that I do feel like there's more science coming out on that, that, that these you know, sort of huge monocultures um, and, and, you know, depending on how they're grown, that the actual nutrients are not going to be as robust right. in those, you know, that rice, for example, as it might be in um, rice grown someplace else. So that's, yeah, it's, it is very concerning, um, but I feel like most your sort of average person, it doesn't feel like something they can personally change. Um, but I just encourage people to realize that every time they go to the store and buy something, they're making a decision that is influencing the system. And so I think um, that's where we can try to at least have some influence. Um, so he kind of, at the, towards the end of the section, um, he talks about how the yeah, you know, I would say, I mean, would you say there were like the overall the 2018 Farm Bill was it like a win, I would say, for the public health and sustainability, you know, environmental sustainability uh, camps or kind of like a break-even type of a situation? How would you categorize the outcome of the recent legislation? I would I would say it's probably more like a break-even. I think there were things that were good, which were highlighted in the paper, so supporting the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentives Program, the Finney Program, um, was something that you know, was supported and, you know, a couple other examples he provides. But overall, I think that it wasn't, it didn't make progress, really. It was more sort of like treading water. Right. All right. So switching gears to nutrition assistance, um, can you, like, and also speaking of the Farm Bill, can you tell us a little bit about what has happened um, recently with this program and where it stands today? So, you know, so the biggest program, as I mentioned, is SNAP, Mm -hmm. um, and it is basically 77% of the overall cost of the Farm Bill. Um, It goes towards SNAP, so it's really significant. 
I think that, um, you know, it's needed because at the same time, about 12% of all American households report food insecurity, which means that they um, are uncertain about having enough money to buy food Mm -hmm. to feed their family. And so, um, you know, the, the SNAP program has come under attack. There's, it's frustrating because it's really, there's very little evidence that there is, um, you know, disproportionate, you know, sort of problems in the program in terms of like dishonesty or people, you know, kind of, you know, breaking the rules. But for some reason, there's sort of a stereotype out there that, um, that folks can't be trusted and that people are sort of gaming the system. And, and that's just not true. There's, um, you know, there's very little actual evidence of that. But because of that, um, there can sometimes be sort of political forces trying to kind of clamp down on the program, trying to change the rules about um, what level of poverty is necessary in order to qualify. And so I think very recently there's been um, some suggestion out of the current administration of kind of shifting the way that the algorithm they use to identify who qualifies for SNAP so that it'll actually end up kicking a lot of people off the program. And then the other issue is work requirements, that there um, you know, are efforts to try to make it harder for people to sort of get SNAP and require them to prove more about working, even though there's, again, very little evidence that people are taking advantage of the system right now. And don't most SNAP recipients actually work? Yes, yes. And <laughs> and the ones that don't are often children or the elderly. So it's really, yeah. you know... Gotta put those some, kids to work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think, I mean, I think the advocates are, are really frustrated because they feel like this is just all about um, stereotypes and and it's really sort of digging into this um, you know kind of negative attitude that somehow people don't don't deserve it or people are using it and they're just being lazy and there's just absolutely no evidence that that's that that's true it really is a lifesaver yeah um, for families and you know and if you make it harder for folks to get on SNAP, all you're going to do is hurt people and have more people who don't have enough food. And that is certainly not going to help our society in the long run. No, no, absolutely not. Can can we dig into, I think that a lot of people don't, you know, along the same line as people, there is a common um, misperception that there's a lot of fraud in the, you know, with this program. I think that people don't realize how effective it is. Um, or do you have some kind of statistics or, you know, information on the, the incredibly positive impact this program has? So, you know, there, there are some, you know, there have been studies really showing how helpful it is. So um, one study found that by increasing food stamp payments by a dollar, you're increasing the gross domestic product by a dollar seventy-three. so that it does have this sort of multiplier effect because it's money that then is going into the economy mm-hmm. um, and sort of being productive. Um, and then there have also been studies specifically on WIC, which is kind of like a smaller but similar program that's specifically for women and young children, and there, there's been research really looking at the impact on health care costs, and uh, one study found that for every dollar invested in WIC, that was associated with $1.77 to $3.13 in savings of health care costs down the line. So there's, you know, research really to suggest that investing in these programs ultimately is helping the economy and is saving in health care costs. And so there's really, you know, strong 
reasons not to cut the programs because then you will lose all of those benefits. Not to mention that it really is effective in keeping people above the poverty line, right? Yes, that is absolutely right. Um, it does what it's so, supposed to. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it really, like, what happens in the research on, on folks with food insecurity, I've seen some studies out of Feeding America, um, which is sort of the umbrella organization of all the food banks in the country, and they've done research with, you know, people who go to food pantries and soup kitchens, and what you find is that people have to make really difficult choices. They have to decide, do I spend money on food or do I st- spend money on housing or on medicine, and people are kind of stuck making making those impossible choices. And so if you can provide the money for the food, then you can allow people to then have resources for all of the other really important expenses that they have. Um, okay, so I want to shift now and talk about your main section, which of course is uh, school food. Why do you think, you know, why is school food one of the three pillars of food policy in and of itself? So, I mean, the program, the National School Lunch Program is pretty big, um, so it's kind of second to snap in terms of its overall size, Mm -hmm. and about 30 million kids um, eat school lunch every day that they're in school. Every day. Every day. Yeah, like, sorry, right. I think that the bear is, like, emphasizing, <laughs> I mean, you know? it's a lot, right, it's a lot of kids. And so, you know, what I sort of, you know, the way I think about it is if you can make a change in what's being served in schools, you know, as part of the lunch program, you're affecting 30 million children every single school day, and there's really not much you can do in my field that has that big of an impact um, at a national scale. So I also think school lunch is really interesting because it it makes sense to people that it should be held to a higher standard. It was a lot easier to make the case of improving nutrition in school lunch than, for example, changing what people are allowed to buy with SNAP. Because when you're talking about children and you're talking about children in schools and the school is responsible for providing the food, I think this idea of being paternalistic is just fine (laughs) because you're talking about kids and you're taking care of them. And so that's sort of whole argument kind of falls away and people understand that kids are a captive audience especially the kids who are getting free meals it's not like they um you know are sort of have a whole lot of other options so we really need to focus on giving them the best possible meals that we can and if we're not then we we're really doing them a disservice um okay so i actually forgot to ask you a question that I that I have that I really, really wanted to ask about the SNAP section of the paper. So mm-hmm. I'm not to interrupt our flow about, <laughs> about this topic, but jumping back, what are your thoughts on implementing nutrition standards for SNAP? <laughs> I'd so, like, I have to ask. <laughs> yeah. So I've written an entire paper on that topic as well. Um, so it's incredibly complicated. Um, I have been in meetings where colleagues of mine who I respect and admire have gotten in practically screaming matches with each other over this topic. It tears our field apart. My personal feeling, and I've worked very hard to try to understand all sides of this, but my personal feeling is that sugary drinks are, are a particular category of food that, you know, certainly the Rudd Center research and tons of other research has really made the case to me that it just shouldn't count as food. Right. Like, it, it right. just it doesn't qualify. In my mind, yes, it's edible, but it isn't food. There's no nutrition. There's no value. And, in fact, there's lots of evidence that it hurts people more than it helps people to consume that product. Mm-hmm. So, in my mind, 
sugary drinks should not be allowed for purchase with SNAP dollars. Um, but I understand there are reasons that that folks, even folks who disagree, who agree that sugary drinks are no good, um, will disagree with that because their argument is that something like a soda tax or a sugary drink tax applies to everyone in society equally. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, there are folks at FRAC, um, the Food Research Action Center, who um, are fine with a tax because that's everybody, but they don't like restricting SNAP purchases of sugary drinks. And it's not because they think sugary drinks are fine. It's Mm -mm. because they don't like the idea that you're sort of, quote, picking on this one population, having a different set of rules for low-income folks that don't get applied to everybody. What I argue in sort of my perspective is, you know, if it were up to me, I would have it applied to everybody. I mean, we've been trying for years and years, we've been trying to get people to stop consuming sugary drinks. So it isn't as though we just decided, oh, let's focus on SNAP and not bother doing anything else. No, we've been trying to get them out of schools, get them out of, um, you know, childcare centers. You know, we've been part of obviously promoting attacks. So, you know, you know, getting them out of government buildings. I mean, we've tried everything under yeah. the sun to, <laughs> trying to pull the every whole. lever. Right. So yeah. we sort of, you know, I actually have a slide I've used when I give presentation of like a puzzle. So we have puzzle pieces and we've worked on every single setting that we can think of to try to decrease the likelihood of someone drinking sugary drinks in that setting. And the SNAP is just one piece of that larger puzzle. But I do understand that it doesn't feel that way sometimes to the advocates. Well, I mean, it just seems like how big of a program is SNAP? Is it um, $80 billion a year? Did I get that right? It, let's see, it is... um, Eight hundred and sixty-seven billion over ten years. Over yes. okay, so mm-hmm. yeah, so um, that seems that's like the, that's the farm bill actually. So it's six hundred and sixty-four billion of that is SNAP. Okay, so so a significant portion. That's a lot of money. That seems like it's a lot of um, opportunity to really make a, a significant decrease. Assuming that there are a lot of. SNAP recipients who do who do use their um, benefits to buy soda, sugary drinks in some respect. Right. And we've done research on that exact thing. So Tanya Andreeva has done research. You know, it's hard to get the data. Um, and and yeah, actually, don't... it'll be even harder now because of the Supreme Court ruling that just came out. But you can't, so it's not that easy to get the data on what people are buying with SNAP. But um, the studies that have been done, um, Tanya has looked at and there is, you know, a reasonable portion of it is being spent on sugary drinks. At the same time, there was another study that was done that looked at how the soda companies actually kick up their marketing the week that SNAP benefits come out. Yeah. So it's not even, you know. so and that's not fair. Like the, yeah, the deck is completely stacked yeah. against you. So here's an inexpensive, heavily marketed product that is promoted, especially when SNAP benefits are released in your state. And, you know, so there's, I think, a lot of things working against us. So if there were a way to limit um, SNAP dollars being spent on sugary drinks, I think it would make a very big difference. I but, think of course, the beverage companies, that's the last thing they want. They're not do. super psyched about that idea. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's so interesting. So retailers don't have to... Um, hand over that information uh, in terms of what, uh, how the SNAP benefits are being used? 
No. My understanding is that there's actually been a court case for many years now. It was started by a newspaper, I think in South Dakota, where they were trying to get that data from retailers of what people were buying with SNAP. And the USDA um, did not want to release the information, even though they have it, because they said that it would actually hurt the retailers. So it ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court um, and was one of the things that came out just this last couple weeks um, as the Supreme Court was releasing all of its decisions. And basically they sided with the USDA saying that they didn't have to release the information because they had tried to FOIA that information. Um, And the Supreme Court said, no, they didn't. So it really was much more of a legal issue of what is, you know, kind of what is subject to FOIA. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with whether you are putting the retailers at a competitive disadvantage by releasing the data. Um, The way that the data are stored right now, you would know which retailer had what. Anyway, Uh, I was disappointed because as a researcher, I was like, that is a drag because it would have been really nice to have the data because you could have, I think, done a lot of really interesting things with it, including figuring out if there are places in the country where people really don't have access to healthy food and showing how much harder it is for them to make healthier choices and sort of using that to advocate for, you know, improving access to healthier foods in in specific locations. But not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, All right. Okay, so we have to take a really quick commercial break uh, to hear a word from our sponsors, but stay tuned for more. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L-Stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Damon Bolte. And I'm Souther Teague. Together we host The Speakeasy, a show where we discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe. Yeah, our guests range from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, hippies and home brewers, and every expert enthusiast in between. <laughs> Browse episodes of The Speakeasy wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Marlene Schwartz about her recently released article, um, which was a primer on U.S. food and nutrition policy and public health published in the American Journal of Public Health. Switching back on that on that bummer note, that's sad note, <laughs> <laughs> switching back to uh, school food nutrition, where there have been really big gains in the past 10 years that um, I want to go into. But before we do, what is the governing legislation? So this is not, school nutrition is not under the umbrella of the farm bill. Um, can you tell us where it kind of sits in the federal government and how it's funded? 
Sure. So it's under the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. Um, so that is the act that required all of the required the USDA basically to go back and um, revamp a lot of the regulations, the nutrition regulations for the different foods, and also um, had some, you know, sort of funding, you know, things that it addressed in terms of increasing funding for the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much, sorry, you might have mentioned this before, but how much funding is there for this program on an annual basis, keeping in mind that it feeds 30 million kids a day? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question, and I don't have that number right in front of me. Oh, no problem. Okay, so, <laughs> but like a, you know, quite a good chunk of change, you ima- you would imagine. Um, right. So what are, you know, 2010, like you said, was a very pivotal year for school nutrition. Can you, um, like, what are some of the policy gains that took place and um, where are, yeah, let's just start with that. What are some of the big policy kind of changes? Sure. So, you know, there had always been nutrition standards for school meals, which some people find surprising because they were like, how can, you know, chicken nuggets and French fries meet any kind of nutrition standard? Yeah. But in fact, they really, they did always have them. And um, the standards, though, were focused on having enough food. So there were calorie minimums, but no maximums. So that was one thing that changed. For the first time, there were calorie maximums as well that are by age groups. So mm-hmm. that was a huge shift. Number two, you always had to have a variety of food groups available. So you had to have kind of a fruit and vegetable, grain, protein, and milk, dairy, and kids needed to take three of the five components in order for it to be a reimbursable school lunch, so in order to get some of that federal funding. what One big change was that instead of it being any three of those components, one of those three had to be the fruit or the vegetable. So it was actually a small shift that, it, you know, the requirement was that one of your three had to be a fruit or a vegetable as opposed to it being okay to just have the grain, meat, and milk. But that caused, I think, a lot of sort of ripple effects because what it meant is that the schools really needed to start providing more fruits and vegetables. And then there were additional requirements about having variety of fruits and vegetables, particularly over the course of the week, having more kind of different types, you know, green leafy vegetables and orange vegetables and things like that, that, you know, before you could kind of have corn and potatoes and call it a day. So that um, was another really big change. And so um, one thing the USDA tried to do unsuccessfully actually had to do with potatoes. So there was an effort um, to limit the, the amount of starchy vegetables that you had each week. And that wasn't just, you know, because they were trying to pick on French fries, but because <laughs> research had actually been done. Um, the, the CINDA study, which is a school nutrition assessment um, study that's done every few years by the government, it's sort of... Um, you know, they sort of hire a company to collect a ton of data on the school meal program, and we just had another one come out. Anyway, that had found that there was a statistically significant relationship between the number of times a week a school served French fries and the BMI of the students. So that was really the scientific basis for trying to limit potatoes because kids, you know, were taking those and not taking the other vegetables that might have been available. Well, this just turned into a political nightmare and the potato council really was upset and legislators from states that grow a lot of potatoes, interestingly Maine, 
you would think Idaho. Yeah, you would. You would. It was Susan Collins from Maine kind of led the charge saying that they were picking on potatoes and, you know, she came in apparently with a head of iceberg lettuce saying, you know, come on, this isn't so healthy either. And um, it essentially got shut down. So potatoes are safe. Potatoes are are still there. Um, But I think that the overall regulations do require, you know, some variability over the course of the week. So I think kids are getting a lot of different types of um, vegetables and fruits. Yeah. Okay. So, and so like substantial gains, except by the way, and I shouldn't, um, but you know, the tomato paste, the whole tomato paste on pizza is still a vegetable too. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) right. So that that was another loophole that the USDA tried to get rid of saying the tomato paste on pizza wouldn't count as a vegetable. Um, But this time it was Minnesota where the Schwann company is located and yeah. I guess they make more frozen pizza for schools than anybody else and that was um, another sort of lost battle for yeah. the USDA but they got they won a lot of battles so they right. got their calorie maxims they got their variability over the course of the week in terms of fruits and vegetables they got the requirement the kids had to take a fruit or a vegetable and mm-hmm. there have now been a number of studies looking at this and it's been very successful so we did a study showing that there was not an increase in plate waste because that was sort of the argument is other yeah. kids are just throwing everything away we had data from before and after the changes went into effect and we showed that the proportion of fruits and vegetables getting thrown away did not change <laughs> from before to after that's not to say that kids don't throw away a lot of food at schools, because they do. Plate right. waste is sort of a whole problem, but it didn't get worse because of this in the schools that we studied, or a researcher named Juliana Cohen, who um, was up at Harvard, who looked at the Boston schools, found the same thing, that the proportion stayed the same. And then there are major gains in sodium reduction and whole grain, cons- you know, an increase in whole grains consumed as right. well, right? Yeah. Right. So they, they finally set some sodium standards, and that's one place where I feel like we're kind of fighting with the current administration. So originally, um, there had been a study that came out that said the National Academy of Medicine back in 2009 said that by 2020, that essentially school meals should only provide a third of the sodium per day because it's one out of three meals. Right. Makes Um, sense. And right now it provides about 70% of the sodium for the day on average. Yeah. So that was what they said. The USDA kind of came up with these progressive targets in, you know, from 2014, 16, and then 2022. This administration basically rolled back those targets, got rid of the third one altogether, and pushed target two out to 2024. So it's, it's essentially just really slowed down the progress. And what's frustrating about that is that the only way it's really going to change is for the industry to change their formulas. Like these are not, it's not like the cafeteria workers are out there like pouring salt <laughs> into like big pots or something. Yeah. This is the sodium. Well, they don't cook. From- I mean, they don't cook anymore. <laughs> the kitchen's already. Even equipped to cook, so yeah. <laughs> so right, so it's really coming from the you know the packaged foods that are you know that are made specifically for schools, and that's where the industry the industry is the one that has to solve this problem. They have to reformulate. They have to take sodium out of their products. And when you know the incentive was if you want to sell your products in schools, you have to drop your sodium. That was a pretty good incentive for them to. Oh, invest they did it in. exactly. But now that it's gone back, I think. I think there's really not going to be an incentive. And so that's, 
I think, a big disappointment. And then whole grains is really the same exact situation, that they had set these progressive goals for increasing the amount of what they call whole grain rich, which means that 50% or more of the product is a whole grain. So originally they had that 50% whole grain rich, and then it had to go up to 100%, and they essentially effectively rolled it back to 50%. It, it's sort of, they, you had to ask for permission if you needed a waiver to not meet the 100%, which about a quarter of districts had done. And they basically said, you don't have to ask anymore. It's fine. So they basically made it go back to just half our whole grain rich. I mean, and and you write that the, it's the School Nutrition Association, right, is the one who like ostensibly we think was like responsible for really pushing back on some of these standards. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a trade group, a trade organization that's of school food, school nutrition professionals. So I'm, you know, whose mission is literally to advance the quality of school meals. And so I'm wondering like, why, why, why was, why was this particular group um, so vocally opposed to, uh, the, the standards that have been implemented for the past, you know, about a decade or so. So I, I don't know for sure. Right, for sure. Because yeah. I'm not part of the group yeah. and I'm not in those meetings. However, my theory is that they get a lot of funding from the companies that sell food in schools. And the, company, the, the companies are the ones who stand to lose if they don't reformulate to meet these tougher standards And so they have a financial sort of stake in it that they don't want the standards to get any harder. And they want to be able to continue selling the products that they already have and not come up with new products. And so I think that they are really the ones behind it and that they wanted things to stay the same. I I feel like this, there are, um, I think there are members, you know, people who work in school food service who don't agree with the School Nutrition Association kind of national group, and I think they have had some internal issues over the years. Um, and that's, you know, something that it would be interesting to talk to someone inside that group about. Right, yeah. And it also, you know, in terms of reformulation, first of all, it seems like a pretty captive audience, right? I mean, these are these are contracts that are really locked in, and you have, like, a built-in. It's not. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of choice in terms of, like, all the kids – aren't going to, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to follow the typical like market demand if a product isn't, you know, particularly as tasty. I don't know if that's actually true, but. um, I mean, I think it really depends on your district. So this is where, you know, it's such a fascinating thing to study because it it is super complicated. So I think that there are districts you know, the districts we've studied are districts where basically all of the children get free meals. So there are cities that have such high, you know, free reduced rates that they just sort of give free meals to everyone. And in those districts, I think you, it's sort of a best case scenario because number one, everybody participates. So you don't, you know, so kids really aren't, you know, there's not like competition, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, it's a social norm. You know, these districts, these kids have been eating school meals since kindergarten. And so in some ways they are used to eating school meals. And if school meals are gradually changing, they'll, their preferences will go ahead and change with them. Right. And so I think that those are the districts where you're going to have the best success. I think the districts where 
you do have more trouble are ones where there isn't a very large percentage of kids who qualify for free meals. And so your participation rates are lower. Mm -hmm. You're more desperate (laughs) to please the kids and sort of entice those kids who otherwise would bring their lunch from home. And that's the sort of trap that I feel like the school meal program got caught into was essentially acting like, you know, a food court and having kids meals and trying to sort of appeal to kids who, you know, it was, you were competing against what they could bring from home. And as much as, you know, I want everybody to have access to the healthier meals, I feel like we should really be focusing on those districts where the majority of the kids are getting free meals because those are the ones that are most at risk of not having adequate nutrition. And so I personally feel like that's where we should be focusing our energy. And if it means that in some districts you have fewer kids participating because those kids are from wealthier families, we know that they're not at as high risk of poor nutrition Mm -hmm. as the other kids. So it isn't, I don't see it as the same level of urgency to get them to eat the school meals. And it's funny because I think people don't realize also the the schools are very, the schools need kids to participate. I mean, in terms of, so talking about the lesser, the tier of um, where there isn't such a high participation rate. I mean, doesn't the school really need those kind of reimbursement, those reimbursements from the government? They they do. And so this is, you know, this is where it gets sort of, you know. It's so complicated. And it's like an economic problem. So at some point in some districts, it may make sense not to participate in the school meal program. And I mean, I there are people who would be furious at me for even saying that. But honestly, if you hardly have any kids who qualify for free meals, as a district, you could as decide to provide some other, you know, way for those kids to, mm-hmm. to have meals. And you could just sort of go off the school meal program and then you can, you know, then you, you let the rest of us make, of, make Im- big improvements that will impact way more people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's tricky. And, and so I, you know, ideally it'd be great if all the schools provided the healthy meals and all the kids ate the meals, but I feel like the government needs to invest its money where it matters the most. Yeah. And I think if it means focusing mostly on the higher need districts, then that's what I think makes sense. Yeah. The one, I mean, the one thing, so I just went to a, um, a fundraiser for a candidate who's running for office and this person was talking about how, um, he was a local politician and how like the system is so broken and school food is a mess. It's atrocious. We can't believe what we're, you know, serving to kids these days. And I was standing in the corner kind of like fuming in a way because to me, First of all, it demonstrates like, I mean, yes, there are major, there are, there are some issues, but like I coming from New York and having worked on school food, know a, how complicated it is, right? Like the, it's the one thing that I have always said, it's the one issue area that the more I learn, the more confused I get and the more, you know, I realize just how hard it is, but there have been some really big improvements and change in this kind when you're trying to work with this kind of volume is it's really, really hard and slow and arduous. And I don't know, it just really irritated me because I do, I do think that people have no idea like the, the immense gains that we've seen in the past 10 years that are now at risk of being rolled back. Yeah, no, I, I feel the exact same way. And I am furious when I hear people complain about yeah. school meals too because I've really seen how far they've come. So I guess one thing um, 
that is really, I think, makes it makes the problem worse is that if you just look at the menu, like if you go to a website of a school district and you pull up their menu, you're going to see pizza, tacos, yeah. you know, like chicken fingers. You don't know that that pizza has a whole grain crust and vegetables on it, or those chicken fingers are baked and not fried, etc. And so people can't tell by looking at the menu um, exactly what's in the food. And that, I think, is part of the problem. Yeah. And I've heard food service directors say that they don't want to write, like, baked chicken, you know, fingers or whole grain crust pizza because they're afraid the kids will be like, ugh, that doesn't yeah. sound so good. So they try to make it sound like the way it's always sound, even though the formula has it's changed. much better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other really big change that came with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act was also for the first time since the 70s, having standards for everything else that's sold. So all of the snacks, vending machines, school stores, fundraising during the day, mm -hmm. those are now under nutrition standards where they hadn't been for decades. That's and huge. That, that was very big. And that affects everybody. Because even if you don't participate in the school meal program, the vet, what's available in the vending machines in your schools is going to have an impact on you. Absolutely. And so that's something where what we saw, and this is why I know the industry is fully capable of reformulating when the incentive is big enough, is they that's what they did. They reformulated. Yeah. So yeah. you have compliant Cheetos and compliant Doritos. And, you know, essentially what they did is they came up with versions of popular snacks that would meet the sugar, sodium, and salt limits. So I think that that's, you know, again, kind of evidence that if this school meal program sets standards, the industry will figure it out. I have to ask, this is another burning question that I, um, you know, just really want to talk about for a minute. Um, chocolate milk. <laughs> you want so to talk about chocolate milk? Chocolate milk. <laughs> another thing I've spent way too much time thinking about. So, Chocolate milk. It oh. you know, there, there's a part of there's a part of me that just is is will is ready to give up on, on that uh, fight. Yeah. You know, so we did a study in New Haven. New Haven is a very very progressive um, school district. They've worked extraordinarily hard over the last 15 years to improve their school meals. They got rid of their you know sort of big company. They hired a chef. They've invested a ton because they know how important it is for the children who go to school there. It's 100% free breakfast mm -hmm. and lunch. So they had made all these changes, and they basically looked at themselves, and they sell no competitive foods at all. So it's basically the school lunch is what you get. And they said, why are we serving chocolate milk when we've made all these other changes? So they decided to take chocolate milk out. Mm -hmm. And people got a that some people got upset, and we did a study where we actually followed the kids over um, a few years to see if consumption of milk got better. And what we found was that it did improve some. Like it is, we didn't know exactly what we did. They didn't tell us till after they took it out, so we didn't have baseline data of exactly yeah. how many kids were drinking milk to begin with. Yeah. But we basically found that there are kids who drink white milk the whole time and were perfectly happy to keep drinking white milk, and there were some kids who switched from chocolate milk to white milk, and they were fine. And then there were kids who didn't drink milk even before, and so still they still weren't drink drinking milk. milk. Yeah. And then there, were the, there was a small proportion of kids who would drink the chocolate milk but basically would not drink the milk after there was no more chocolate milk. And so I think, it, again, it's complicated. So what you have to do as a district is you have to figure out how big is that group the group of kids who will essentially forego any milk if they don't have flavored milk. Mm -hmm. And I would argue it's a fairly small group 
of children. You can figure it out in your district, like how many you think it is, and then you can make an educated decision about whether that cost is too high for the benefit of decreasing the sugar overall, you know, the kids are getting from milk. There are calorie limits. So if you keep your chocolate milk, your calories are higher and you're going to have to cut them somewhere else anyway. But I think that, you know, cutting it from the milk is, is an easy place to cut it. And then you sort of have more flexibility with the rest of your meal. Yeah. I don't know. I don't get it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you think it's more of like a reimbursable component thing? Like schools really rely on that income coming back? Or do you think it's just the power? I mean, obviously, it's the power, I think, of the dairy industry, because we have fluid milk as an individual item, as, you know, as right. a reimbursable component, which also just blows my mind. But right. like, or I mean, there's all but there's a lot of there's a big part of the dietetic community um, who think it's, you know, chocolate milk is better than no milk, which I also don't really understand. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think it's where I get frustrated is when people just like globally decide that as if a hundred percent of kids are going to react the same way. Right. They're not. Yeah. So, you know, it, you have to really look at, you know, sort of what are, do you have calcium deficiency? You know, do you have vitamin D deficiency? Are there, are there age groups for which this is a bigger issue or particular ethnic groups for which this is a bigger risk. You know, you kind of mm-hmm. have to look at the population and, and make a decision. It's really hard to just globally, like, decide one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, part of, part of my interest in this really came from just being frustrated by how heavily the dairy industry was lobbying for chocolate milk. I mean, they were really, really pushing it. Yeah, and that just it. seemed unnecessary to me because the data really show that most kids will drink white milk. They drink white milk at home. And so I just didn't believe that this subgroup that would only drink chocolate milk and just refuse to drink white milk was that big of a group. And I didn't think it was worth it you know, to kind of keep the policy, this, you know, just for that one group. Yeah. But, yeah, it's super, com- again, this doesn't seem like it'd be that complicated, but it's yeah. actually really complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we only have time for, like, two more questions, maybe three, but um, I want to, one of the themes also throughout this paper when we talk about, when you talk about just healthier diets and diets that are better for the planet and also our health is the importance of, a plant-based diet. Where is school food nutrition with the ad- kind of like the adoption of a plant-based diet or, you know, moving more closely to something that looks like a plant-based diet? Yeah, that, I mean, that is a really good question and we haven't studied that. So I, you know, sort of have my impressions, but I don't have data. Um, I think that our society is moving in that direction, and so my guess is that the schools will start to reflect our society. I think the fact that you do have these calorie limits, you have saturated fat limits, that that is going to push people to more of a plant-based diet because it's going to be lower in saturated fat than, you know, than animal products. But I think, you know, I'm imagining that the, the um, study that came out recently that the USDA released about school meals should have some information if we've made movement in that direction. I know there are papers um, sort of in the pipeline right now that really show that overall the nutritional quality of school meals has gotten significantly better since yeah. the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act. And so I'm guessing that that movement is probably part of it. Um, and just so so we're totally clear, by a plant-based diet, do we mean it's not totally vegan, right? Or is it? 
No, oh no. I mean, I think it's just moving. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> it's you know instead of having meat five days a week, <laughs> or you know, ha- like what percentage of the options are meat versus non-meat options? Um, I think you know dairy is always never going to go important. anywhere. I mean, dairy is an important, you know, like you yeah. said, milk is an actual food group in yeah. school meals. It's its own, it gets its own whole category. Um, you know, I think that there are, my guess, there are probably more schools now that will carry milk alternates um, because I believe that if you have children who can't consume, you know, cow's milk, mm-hmm. that they're required to offer other you know, sort of milk substitutes like soy milk. My guess is there's probably more of that now. I mean, I'm amazed at how much more of that there is at the grocery store. It seems yeah. like every time I go to the grocery store, there, the sort of dairy cabinet is more, you know, options of different types of non-dairy milk alternatives than the time before. So my guess is the schools will start to move in that direction as well. Ah, okay, so um, last question, and I'm hoping this is going to be on a more positive note, but I'm not totally sure. So we, when we think about some of the rollbacks that um, either are underway or at, are possibly going to be underway, um, I, I guess when I, when I think about improvements, let's think about actually improvements to nutrition standards, let's say. Like, improve, like they're, they're in- incremental, right? You can't do everything at once, and they're phased in over time, and... Um, I'm just wondering with that in mind, do you think that similarly rolling back some of these standards, um, relaxing some of the regulations, um, do you think that will take time as well, which might give us more time to like, say, I'm just thinking in like the next administration to kind of reverse the course again? (laughs) Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. I I I agree. I I think the inarticulately changes. Nothing changes quickly in this yeah. system. It is a big system, and people, you know, food service directors order their food a year before. You know, I mean, yeah. it's especially that's, in a super that's... huge district. I mean, they're ordering it. You know, it's months and months and months earlier that they're working on contracts with vendors and identifying products. So yeah, just because the the rollback was in, I don't know, was it December of 2018? It's not like by January there was a difference. I mean, things don't happen that fast, particularly the the milk one, I'll be very interested to see if 1% flavored milk, which wasn't allowed before and now is allowed again, mm-hmm. I'll be interested in seeing how much of it is really going to show up because they already ordered their milk. Like right. That's like a, that's done. Right. And I would be surprised if that many really cared enough to, to reintroduce a product that had already been taken out. Yeah. And kind of the same thing for you know, all of the districts that had changed their grains to whole grain, um, I'd be surprised if they kind of went backwards, especially right. because I think food service directors, number one, I truly believe that they do have children's best interests in mind. Absolutely. I mean, I have met a lot of them, and they yeah. care about the kids, and they know that the kids need nutritious food. So I trust them yeah. to do the right thing. Um, it's the, you know, it's sort of the industry gets in the way level yeah Yeah. sort of the corporate level where i'm less trusting (laughs) so i think that if they feel like their kids have gotten used to the whole wheat tortillas or the you know sort of you know more whole wheat in the other bread products or pasta products i don't think they're going to go back it also really you know this there is a clear 
move, like for in terms of consumer de demand, consumers want healthier products. And you see the response of industry, you know, writ large, right? With with a lot of like different new pro like products on the market or, um, you know, kind of healthier options. So it just seems to me like it wouldn't make a lot of sense to go backwards um, for them and even for the industry in general. So, or for those, for these companies in general. So maybe a, a, a bit of positive news. Um, yeah, to, to wrap up, Meg, and I'm a cautious optimist. Um, okay, so last question: Where um, can our listeners go to, like, follow your work um, and to read this paper? Sure. So, if you go to the Red Center website, so it's www.uconredcenter.org. You can download this paper. It's right there on our website. You can sign up for our newsletter, which is a monthly newsletter that talks about our work and work of our colleagues and sort of what's happening in the field. Um, and then we, you know, have lots of other resources on our website based on our research that are, you know, free to download. All right. Um, Marlene, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was so fun. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. All right. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to our engineer, Jeet Paul, and show intern, Devani Latino. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio uh, Network website or as a podcast, uh, wherever you find them. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Ute. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>